0: Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. I'm very happy to be back after taking some time off for paternity leave, I missed you guys. In that time, the world has changed quite a lot, sadly, and here on the podcast we are going to try and unpack this new world and clarify what it'll mean across Africa and the Horn of Africa specifically. Today I'm speaking with Samuel Ramani. Samuel's book called Russia and Africa is coming out this summer and it's even more timely than I think he probably imagined it would be. He's also an associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute and is a a scholar at the University of Oxford. We talk about Russia's strategy towards Africa before and after the war in Ukraine, how countries on the continent are reacting to the war, and how power politics across Africa is already changing. Samuel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. So we have a lot of bases to cover today. So we'll go ahead and get started, I think, by taking a mini step back, and then we'll probably take some even further steps back. What was Russia's strategy in Africa prior to the invasion of Ukraine? How did Russia view what it was doing in Africa amid its, you know, geopolitical strategy?
1: So Russia viewed Africa as an increasingly important component of its broader pursuit of a multipolar world order and its broader engagement with the global south. And even though uh, attention in the United States towards Russia's policy in Africa really only began over the past five or six years with the emergence of Wagner Group, private military contractors in Libya, Central African Republic, and most recently Mali, the Russians have actually been uh, engaging in a pretty common and consistent playbook in Africa ever since the late 1990s. So that consisted of Pillar One economic engagement, which was started by debt forgiveness and also includes a lot of uh, investments in the mining and energy sector, as well as supply of arms. So Russia was the leading arms vendor to African countries. The second pillar of their engagement was in the security sphere, where they became increasingly involved in providing uh, counterinsurgency assistance to various countries through military cooperation deals and then through outright military interventions, many of which were unsuccessful, like we've seen in Mozambique or Libya. But some of them have had uh, qualified successes that they can claim, like Central African Republic. And the third has been through a variety of soft power initiatives. So investments in, uh, in health, as we saw with the vaccine diplomacy, uh, some investments in education, particularly via their nuclear energy giant Rosatom, as well as appealing to uh, elites in the region with an aversion to neocolonialism that they both shared, as well as for a support for anti-Western norms, in particular resistance to Western military interventions and in Western sanctions. So that combination of a soft power engagement, that combination of economic investment and security assistance was a cornerstone of Russia's goals in Africa, and the aim was to establish itself as a continent-wide great power with a foothold in every region of the continent. So Libya and North Africa, increasingly Ethiopia and, and Sudan and East Africa, now Mali and the in in West Africa, Central African Republic in the central part, and their traditional partnerships with Angola, as well as their BRICS alliance with South Africa in the south. So that's how I saw their broader strategy.
0: So is there a broader objective other than simply boosting its own influence uh, vis-a-vis, say, the U.S. or China? I mean, is there something Russia is trying to achieve in Africa besides how it is viewed relationally to other powers?
1: So that's a great question. I think that uh, Russia's policy in Africa it appears very tactical, right? It appears very opportunistic because we've just seen evidence, for example, of the US disengaging from Libya after 2011 and Russia eventually stepping in, or the French leaving Central African Republic and getting tired of counterterrorism operations like Operation Barkhan and the Russians stepping in. But actually, they had a strategic commitment to uh, a long term uh, influence inside Africa, but uh, their goals were often very opportunistic in how they executed their plan. So their goals were strategic but their plans uh, were often executed in an opportunistic ad hoc manner and that's what we see uh revealing itself time and time again
0: obviously uh the russians or, or or the soviets had you know a huge role on the continent during the cold war should we see much continuity from that cold war period to the Russian strategies started to emerge more recently, like you said, in the late 1990s? Or should we see that as more of a a bit of a clean break between the two? So
1: I think that obviously during the 1990s, in the early 1990s in particular, there was a concerted effort from Russian liberals, in particular their foreign minister, Andrei Kozarev, to break with all the trappings of the Soviet policy inside Africa. So whether that be the support for uh, ideological-based revolutions or extensive investments in uh, military technical assistance or foreign aid, It was a lot more aimed at focusing on a small number of countries in the early 90s, like Egypt and South Africa, and on achieving uh, goals that would either provide Russia with hard currency or be economically sustainable. However, there was a sizable subsection of the Russian uh, economic establishment, political establishment, and intellectuals who wanted to see a continuation of Soviet policies in some form. The most outspoken uh, figure in that was Yevgeny Primakov who is widely viewed to be the godfather and founder of Russia's current vision of a multipolar world order and served as foreign minister from 1996 to 98 and then prime minister from 1998 to 1999 Primakov's vision was for the uh, Russians to maintain their Soviet era foothold in Africa maintain their uh, themselves as a crisis proof partner promote anti-western norms sell arms to countries even if they were in conflict zones establish itself as an independent uh, great power and by the late 1990s Primakov's vision had won out, and that's what we basically see being executed on until the present day. So I think that the Russians would view their strategy now as something, however, as an inheritance or continuity with a brief interregnum in the early 1990s of their Soviet-era superpower status. Obviously, there are a lot of constraints there. They have a lot fewer economic resources, and their military resources are limited, and their ability to establish absolute client states in Africa, aside from possibly Central African Republic, is a lot more limited. So there's no big interventions like we saw in support of Ethiopia's Derg regime, for example, from uh, 1974 to 1987. The one thing was that the Soviet Union in the 1970s and 80s focused on two regions, really for long-term influence. So they focused heavily on East Africa, the Horn of Africa, and southern Africa, whereas Russia is prioritizing breadth over depth currently, and trying to establish itself with footholds all across the continent. And it it's also engaging in regions where the Soviet Union was historically weak, like Central Africa and uh, West Africa.
0: And how have you seen Russia's strategy change in Africa, or at least its approach to Africa, since the invasion of Ukraine? Of course, it's, it's still quite early. But does Africa feature differently? You know, in Russia's strategy, you think, within this new context?
1: So I think that if one thing has happened is that Africa's importance to Russian foreign policy has increased. So Africa is seen as an increasingly important cornerstone of the multipolar order. And uh, we even saw, for example, influential Russian academic, Dmitry Suslov, uh, from the Higher School of Economics, say that the uh, embassy cutoffs from the West and the reduction of diplomatic presence in the West is not a problem because that means it will beef up uh, embassy presences inside the global South. In particular, the uh, assumption was in the Russian media that that would be Africa because of the fact that there were significant cuts in the early 1990s that in many countries were never fully replenished. And they're really trying as hard as possible to carry out business-as-usual relations. They haven't seen many of their mega-projects, like Rosatom's Eldaba nuclear reactor in Egypt or their Suez Canal investment zone it permanently cancelled. And they're also pursuing new avenues, like their military cooperation agreement with Cameroon. The reports yesterday about a potential uh, investments in a gas pipeline from Nigeria to Morocco and even some natural gas projects in South Africa. To
0: flip the equation, how have you found from your conversations, Russia is viewed by, by African states in which it engages? Obviously, there's a broad plethora of, of answers there. What do they get from Russia, generally speaking, that they wouldn't get from the U.S. or China or Europe?
1: First of all, basically a regime type or human rights blind vendor of arms to African countries is willing to supply security assistance with them too. As also willing to do so in a way that works directly with the state regime in power and doesn't seek to impose regime change or democratization as a starting point for security cooperation. So basically, whatever it tried to uh, do in Syria in support of Bashar al-Assad, it advertises that to autocrats across the region. And that's something that's quite appealing. Also, Rosatom, Rosa Diamond, have significant uh, accesses to mining and uh, energy reserves, so they're natural investors in those, kind of, in those sectors as well. And, of course, wheat and food supply is another significant attribute of it. However, there's no one African view of Russia. Some post-colonial African elites really listen to Vladimir Putin's uh, repetition of historical legacies, like how the Soviet Union opposed apartheid or participated in national liberation movement struggles in Angola and against French colonialism. Those narratives hold, even when they're sometimes abused by this Russian state, like when they talk about Burkina Faso and Russia being friends, even though Thomas Sankara was actually critical of Soviet foreign aid policies in the Soviet war in Afghanistan, for example. But amongst the younger generation, it's mostly frustrations with French neocolonialism, the fact that Russia is not France and Russia is not the West. That seems to be the fundamental source of appeal. And it's also growing discontent with what they see as state capture, in particular in Central African Republic and Mali as well as the egregious human rights abuses that have been perpetrated by the Wagner group, as well as a lot of promises, $12.5 billion of investments at the Sochi summit, little follow through.
0: There obviously haven't been any uniform responses from African states to the war in Ukraine. And there's obviously been much written about the mixed voting by African states at the United Nations, for instance. There's a narrative, I think, in the Western media that portrays a lot of sinister motives, if you will, by states for, for, for not condemning the Russian invasion or not backing the, the West's response to the Russian invasion. I'm wondering, how much do you think we can chalk up to states, you know, simply pursuing their own interests, hedging their own bets? And how much do you think this, of Africa's broad response to Ukraine, how much of this has to do with the strength of an anti-Western worldview um, that exists in, in, in parts of the continent um, and perhaps the overlap of that worldview between Russia and parts of the global South?
1: That's a great question. I think that uh, Africa obviously is not an outlier in much of the global south. I mean, uh, no country in Latin America, or aside from uh, close uh, American allies like Japan, South Korea, uh, for the most part, in the Asia Pacific region have uh, actually imposed sanctions on Russia. Uh, same thing with the Ghost of the Middle East. So Africa's uh, position is very much uh, rooted in the fact that it sees this war in some ways as a war between the uh, collective uh, non-West and the West in some ways. So Russia's narrative that is trying to defeat the unipolar order via victory in Ukraine has got some appeal inside uh, the African continent from that point of view. There's also, I think, just a general feeling of apathy amongst uh, some African elites because of the fact that horrific conflicts occur inside African countries, whether you see Central African Republic or Congo or Sudan over the years, and they just get virtually no attention compared to what we're seeing happen inside Ukraine. And that's not too different from what India has argued on this, too. It's like Afghanistan was important to us because of proximity. This is far away, and this is a more of a European problem. Also, there's the African autocratic elites who are fearful of the fact that the precedent of imposing sanctions on a regime like... Uh, but like like Vladimir Putin's, which potentially are aimed at regime change from their point of view, will lead to those kind of sanctions being imposed in their home territory. And they're grateful for the fact that Russia has, has generally resisted the imposition of stiff sanctions on African countries, whether it be Zimbabwe in 2008, whether it be allowing arms sales to Sudan during the Darfur War. And they don't want to rock that boat. So there's multiple things at play here. But in general, I think that there's a lot of anti-Westernism that may even be trumping the uh, actual economic and pragmatic interests on the ground. And Africa is not unique in that respect.
0: Is it your sense that, you know, Russia's military actions and the West, you know, sort of uh, reactive um, economic sanctions, that those are are, are viewed uh, on similar terms rather than just seeing this as an invasion of Ukraine? I mean, obviously, the the sanctions have had a lot of impact also on, like you said, uh, the, the food security situation in Africa.
1: So uh, I think that the uh, African point of view, if you can want to generalize because there's uh, multiple different uh, points of view here, is that uh, we are on the side of diplomacy by abstaining. That was made very clearly by the, Tanz- the Tanzanian and Ugandan leadership, the, even by some countries that voted to condemn the war to, in the early stages like Nigeria – have also uh, resisted escalatory measures or cutting off economic ties with Russia because they believe that a diplomatic solution to uh, border disputes of this kind is preferable. And the Nigerians even cited their own experience dealing with border disputes with Cameroon as a potential precedent for how Russia and Ukraine could deal with this. However, I think that the Russians are doing very, very uh, effective messaging in, in some quarters about the uh, food, tying the food insecurity towards uh, Western sanctions. The Russian ambassador to Kenya even made that very clear. The growing popularity of the Russian media on the continent via RT and Sputnik, and the very fact that many uh, local media outlets uh, repeat Russia's claims about how swift sanctions and sanctions are the real reason for the food insecurity, even though fertilizer is exempt, for example, is uh, allowing Russia's narratives on that issue to gain a bit more prominence than they would gain in other regions.
0: Almost finally along this line of questions, um. The U.S. and the West obviously likes to portray the current battle lines as, you know, democracy versus autocracy. Obviously, there's a lot of democracies in Africa. It, ha- have we seen the responses to the war break down at all uh, uh, along that, or is that more or less a kind of Eurocentric view of of how the global coalition is is a rallying on either side?
1: I think that's a somewhat Eurocentric view of how uh, the the coalitions are building for and against Russia. Obviously, you see a lot of authoritarian regimes uh, tending to side with Russia in this respect. Um, We see Eritrea, for example, the only country that's voted with Russia consistently, being among the most totalitarian regimes in the entire world. We see uh, other countries that voted for uh, uh, the Russians to stay on the Human Rights Council, like Abiy Ahmed in Ethiopia, which is currently facing its own accusations of genocide in Tigray. You're seeing uh, Algeria as well being a, effectively a military backed dictatorship uh, voting for Russia. So, and Central African Republic, which recognized the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, so or at least sympathize with that, siding with the Russians. But I think it's a little bit uh, of an oversimplification to just reduce this to a democratic authoritarian binary. For example, take a country like South Africa. South Africa is a democracy, but it's also part of BRICS. And ever since Jacob Zuma voted for the no-fly zone in Libya in 2011, South Africa has generally taken the positions of the collective non-West on international crises, whether that be supporting Bashar al-Assad in Syria or sympathizing with Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela, and now avoiding any kind of uh, meaningful condemnation of Russia and even supporting a humanitarian uh, resolution in the United Nations General Assembly that attributed the the humanitarian crisis not to Russia. So it was just a general attribution, but not singling out Russia as an aggressor. So there are a lot of democracies inside uh, Africa that are also taking uh, Russia's side on the veneer of promoting neutrality. South Africa has coincidentally also supported the uh, diplomatic efforts that we're seeing uh, coming forward uh, between Russia and Ukraine, and Saurabhava Ramaphosa and Vladimir Putin discussed that during the early stages of the conflict. The African Union, more generally, is also trying to take out a similar kind of neutral stance even though it includes both autocracies and democracies. And we saw the leader of Senegal talking to Vladimir Putin the days after the crisis, and when Zelensky offered to make a speech to the African Union, there hasn't been much traction there. So I think that the democracy authoritarianism binary is a bit of an oversimplification, given what the factors that are on the ground, I think is much more motivated by support for a multipolar order.
0: Which side, um, if we can say there's just a Russia and a, and a West side, which side would you say sort of has the momentum in the narrative war? Right now on the continent?
1: So I think that that's uh, obviously dependent on which are parts of the continent that you go to. As I said earlier, in countries with a recent experience of French military interventions, or uh, in, uh, in some ways, the feeling that they've been targeted by the United States, like uh, Sudan and Ethiopia, we're starting to see some movements more in favor of the Russian direction and the Russian momentum. Even countries like Nigeria don't frame their condemnation of the war necessarily as solidarity with Ukraine but also, but more along the lines of uh, supporting state sovereignty and in international law. The Kenyan perspective, which uh, really basically equated uh, Russia's involvement in Africa with uh, a form of neocolonialism and compared it to European colonial powers, while also decrying unilateral sanctions against Russia at the same time, a couple of days later, seems to be something of an outlier on the continent. There doesn't seem to be that much uh, overwhelming solidarity with Ukraine, so, aside from a few countries like Nigeria and Kenya, where there's active public debates about solidarity with Ukraine, even if their governments have taken two slightly different positions on whether they're expressing support for Ukraine or not, the Russian narrative war, or at least the narrative war of general apathy towards the conflict, seems to be prevailing.
0: To take another step back from the Ukraine part of this discussion, I want to ask you about two specific uh, sort of tools that Russia uses, um, which are discussed about a lot, and and one you just mentioned, the the Wagner Group. You know, how does the Wagner Group sort of, what role does it play in in Russia's strategy? You see a broad array of different reactions and perhaps overreactions at times um, in the Western media about the Wagner role.
1: So uh, the Wagner Group is very useful for Russia because Russia wants to engage in high-risk operations inside Africa, but also doesn't want the Kremlin's uh, fingerprints to be tied to them. So, the Wagner Group is a very effective conduit for deniable uh, involvement inside Africa. And it, uh, the Wagner Group's uh, rise to prominence in Africa came on the back of uh, their successful role in embedding with pro Russian separatist militias in eastern Ukraine, in the current Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, during the first invasion from 2014 to 2015, as well as the Wagner Group's effective role as uh, a force multiplier in Syria, where they aligned with uh, Bashar al Assad's regime. And they also provided vital training and, uh, and assistance. And when they started succeeding in Libya with regards to the guarding of stationary facilities in Benghazi, as well as providing sniper training and training in the use of Russian-made air defense systems like Pansio-1, and uh, Khalifa Haftar, with the indirect support of Russia, alongside funding from the United UAE allegedly and logistical support from Egypt, managed to take over large swathes of Eastern and Southern Libya, the Wagner Group's efficacy as a tool of Russian influence in Africa grew not just in the eyes of the Western media, but also within the eyes of the uh, Russian government. From my interviews and research, the Russian Ministry of Defense and GRU were a lot more supportive of the Wagner Group's role. There were some figures in the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs who were wary about the reputational damage of carrying out deniable interventions of this kind, but the more uh, hawkish positions and pro-Wagner positions of the uh, MOD and GRU won out, uh, probably because they were able to convince Putin and also because of Putin's uh, longstanding uh, friendship with the Wander Group's main figure, Yevgeny Purgosian, being a longtime crony of his. So that seems to have uh, won out. But the Wander Group's actual record as a supporter of Russia's interests has been very ambiguous. They have effectively guarded diamond mines in Central African Republic, but they failed to do the same with the gold mines in Mali. Their role as a forward counterinsurgency force ended in a resounding failure against uh, ISIS in Cabo Delgado in northern Mozambique and outside of Bengui in the Central African Republic. They were defeated by Turkish uh, forces in a counteroffensive in Libya, and they haven't gained much ground in Mali. And they've been associated with egregious human rights abuses, whether it be the massacres of civilians in Mura in Mali or in the in late January in Central African Republic, and the mass graves in Tarhuna in Libya the uh, allegations from Libya's current leader that the Russians used uh, even used chemical weapons inside Libya in a small quantity. They've done more harm than good for Russia's reputation. But given the fact that Russia does not want to send regular forces on the ground and uh, it sends instructors under the Wagner Group's guise, it also doesn't want to spend money of its own on interventions in Africa. It wants to loot and plunder diamonds and uh, other mineral resources and accrue profits from that, either through smuggling or through legal trade. The Wagner group seems to be the only show in town for Russia and the only really effective instrument of Russian security policy in spite of all of its many shortcomings, limitations and uh, egregious faults.
0: Um well that well that brings me to the to the next question which is Cameroon I think was the was the latest country to sign a military cooperation agreement with Russia. If you say Wagner is kind of the the only or or main instrument that, that Russia has uh, security-wise on the continent, what, what then do these military cooperation agreements really amount to? What do they offer both sides?
1: So aside from a small amount of uh, random activities from other private military companies, again, we're talking about the private space, uh, the Moran Security Group, which has dealt with maritime security, or Patriot, which has done uh, stationary guarding of facilities in Burundi, uh, or S.H.I.E.L.D., which has acted as a force multiplier to some extent inside Libya. The Wagner Group is the only show in town for uh, the guarding of economic assets in the long run and also for counter-insurgency and counterterrorism campaigns. And it's effectively useful because it also has ties to Pergosian's, uh foundation of national values and other uh, disinformation wings, and uh, it can engage in election interference and also manipulation of local opinion on the ground with uh, all in one unit and all in one shop. So it sort of functions as a shadow regime of sorts. And that's kind of why it's uh, beneficial for the, uh, the Russian interest. That's really the only show from all those points of view. Military tactical agreements, however, have a long history, obviously. They're an inheritance from the Soviet era. Even the agreement with Cameroon that was just recently signed is a refashioning of an agreement that was signed in 2015 by Paul Bia, where they had a memorandum of understanding to basically see Russia conquer and deal with Boko Haram with not much follow through. Military tactical agreements also paved the way for the easy and convenient supply of Russian arms and for the advent and entry of Russian instructors when they're, if, if they're ever needed. So Russia stealthily, yeah, from 2017 to 2019, signed agreements of this kind with all five of the G5 members in the Sahel, and now they're arms vendors to, uh, to a lot of them. They've got a formal military presence in, uh, in Mali, and Burkina Faso might want to bring them in. So they serve as gateways or entry points to broader uh, m- military interventions and involvements.
0: Yeah, do do they amount to much ever? I mean, I think they're covered a lot, sort of, in the media when they pop up here or there, but. Do they really substantively uh, change the the arc of politics and security in the countries usually when they, when they go about signing these?
1: So a lot of them, uh, the only way they change it really is uh, in the long run. If the countries use these agreements as kind of a basis to purchase more Russian arms or get more Russian security assistance. On their own, they're relatively limited. They're just like a regular memorandum of understanding, which uh, basically says, oh, we want Russia to help you in such and such ways. And often there's not much follow-through. For example, we saw... In Chad, for example, the Russians signing a military cooperation agreement and then aligning with the Central African Republic against the Chadians, and the Chadians have accused Russia's Wander Group military presence in Mali, its support for the fact rebels from Libya, and uh, its uh, cross-border attack in May of 2021 from the Central African Republic is being carried out by the Russians. So these kind of military uh, tactical or cooperation agreements don't even preclude uh, conduct from the Russians that the, uh, the governments uh, in power might even view to be problematic so they can't even guard against problematic conduct they certainly don't play much of a major role in terms of strengthening uh Russia's influence from uh but unless the countries choose to take them up so a lot of the time they're mostly symbolic
0: i'm going to zoom us in here a second uh, this podcast has a focus on the on the horn of africa specifically And so I want to just um, zero in and and, and look at Russia's engagement here a bit more, and there's of course plenty to discuss. So how does Russia view the the Horn of Africa um, and and the broader Red Sea region crossing over to the Middle East, if you will, as part of its broader geopolitical strategy?
1: So Russia has a long history of trying to project power on the Red Sea in the post-Soviet era. And uh, I think it largely comes as a function of them feeling that their position on the Mediterranean is secure. So after, for example, uh, there was a normalization between Russia and Libya in 2008, there was debt forgiveness, uh, Gaddafi visited Russia, uh, Putin visited Tripoli, and there was a movement towards a base in Benghazi, the Russians started looking abstractly towards a potential naval base in the uh, Red Sea area. And their preferred location, obviously, was Aden in South Yemen because uh, of the historical ties between uh, the Soviet Union and the PDRY, and also just because of the... Uh, suitability, and quality of its facilities. But obviously the Yemeni civil war derailed uh, that aspiration, and the Syrian civil war for a period of time caused Russia to focus more on its Mediterranean foothold, and there was not much progress. But once uh, Assad's position was con- uh, consolidated in Syria and Yemen remained uh, facing uh, civil wars and separatist movements in the southern part of the country, the Russians started looking much more towards East Africa and the Horn of Africa as a potential gateway towards the Red Sea for a base. So we saw Sergey Lavrov uh, visit Eritrea to try to see if they could, a logistics facility could be supplied there in tandem with the removal of uh, UN sanctions in 2018. That didn't go anywhere, but it was an exploration. Uh, but they got a big break when Omar al-Bashir uh, offered Russia a potential basing location on Sudan's Red Sea coast. And the Russians have negotiated with uh, the Sudanese authorities, especially the military figures, Lieutenant uh, General uh, Burhan and Hemeti, the, from the RSF, to uh, consolidate that foothold. And uh, even though they have agreements for 50 years over there, there are a lot of public and grassroots discontents inside Sudan about the potential displacement of people. And even when Hemeti made a statement about it recently, he said that Russia is certainly being considered as a location for that base, but uh, he also kept a door open for other foreign powers to also potentially take that role there. And his concerns about what the renting of space for free in exchange for Russian arms would actually give them. Obviously, the Sudanese would want more sophisticated Russian arms like the S-400s. The Russians were willing to give them only smaller arms and kind of uh, assistance in terms of hydrological uh, navigation and investigations. And the sanctions on uh, Russian equipment to begin with, that boomerang on the Sudanese economy, then those arms for base rental pledges will be will, will inevitably unravel. So I don't think that the Russian base in uh, Port Sudan is a done deal. Ironically, the Russian press was sometimes more pessimistic about it than the Western press until uh, quite recently. And uh, I think that, but Russia does have a long-term strategic foothold of wanting to be a having a place in the Red Sea because it's a part of their Soviet air superpower status. And they've also wanted to challenge the West in terms of anti-piracy and view the Red Sea as a gateway to broader influence in the Indian Ocean and in particular, stronger security partnerships with China and India.
0: Thanks, yeah. I, I mean, there's... <laughs> questions every year about whether or not this Russia base is is, is ever going to happen uh, but but if it did happen how do you think it would it would change the power competition in the in the Red Sea region
1: well first of all it would consolidate Russia's influence over Sudan because now i think given the fact that there is this uh, systemic conflict between the US and Russia over Ukraine has boiled over to such an extent an overt move like hosting a Russian naval base will probably crowd out Western investment from Sudan. That's another constraint that might make it uh, more impossible to happen. The Gulf monarchies like Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Turkey and Qatar and other uh, Middle Eastern countries might still continue to pump money in, as will China, but it will lead to a more anti-Western orientation of Sudanese foreign policy. Given the fact that the Sudanese civil society has been anti-Russian because of the Russian support for the Darfur War and their Wagner Group's alleged involvement in the Khartoum massacre in 2019, at least in terms of encouraging from those leaked files, uh, the Sudanese military to engage in such a crackdown of that kind, and the frustrations inside Sudan about uh, Russia's contributions to food insecurity. These sanctions uh, are causing all the problems narrative is a little bit less credible in Sudan because of their recent experience with the dark side of Russian policy. That that makes uh, a situation where Russia's influence in Sudan is likely strengthened, and in turn, the power of the Sudanese military institutions are also strengthened as well. So that's one major change that we should look for. China's got a base in Djibouti, and will probably welcome another power like Russia uh, countering uh, Western influence there. So I think that the Chinese will pretty much be on board with that. India, at least from analysts I spoke to in New Delhi, are viewing uh, possible uh, maritime cooperation in the Indian Ocean stemming from there, so they'll not be too worried about it. And the question is will the West react in a more dramatic way? If they already lost their foothold in Sudan, they're already having poor relations with Ethiopia because of the Tigray genocide uh, allegations and because of their sanctions on Ethiopia, and the uh, Russians are consolidating closer relations with Ethiopia at the same time. Eritrea has sided overtly with Russia, and Somalia, the U.S., does not seem to want to get involved militarily in a major way. I think that there'll be very little follow-through coming from the West, and Russia, as part of a broader multipolar front will uh, gain significant influence in the Horn of Africa, or at least preserve a foothold of influence if the base were to happen. Regional powers, like the UAE in particular, have been uh, vacillating on their long-term interests in the region, obviously canceling their projects in Berbera, seemingly scaling back to some degree from substantive involvement in Somaliland, taking Ethiopia's side to some extent on the on the GERD mediation, but also for formally backing Egypt on that in, in other circumstances. So, the uh, regional powers that are pro-western that could lead to a counterweight and a check on russian influence and uh, non-western influence are also not there so i think that a russian uh, base in port sudan will lead to the increasing multipolarization of the red sea region with little uh, pushback from western powers
0: and has russia's influence in the horn grown as a as a byproduct and fallout of the Ethiopian civil war. And is it part of any larger objective? Or is this, is this as we discussed earlier, um, you know, does this look more tactical uh, from Russia, sort of taking an opportunity as it sees it and, and sliding in?
1: So Ethiopia certainly has become an increasingly important partner for Russia in the region. It was telling that Ethiopia voted with Russia to keep it on the uh, Human Rights Council. The Russians have also been involved in training of Ethiopian military personnel, including 1,000 uh, pra- personnel, off the coast, which could form like a de facto navy of sorts. We're seeing uh, Russian arms supplies obviously date back to Ethiopia from the 1998-2000 to Badme war and continuing on until the present day. Of course, that's alongside the more decisive contributions of drones, particularly the Baraktars coming from Turkey. Russia's got a lot of soft power in Ethiopia, particularly amongst the uh, supporters of Abiy Ahmed and the uh, uh, supporters of the military intervention that's going on in Tigray. Will that lead to major economic deals or major investments like we saw during the Soviet era? Rosatom has talked for a long time about a nuclear energy plant in Ethiopia, but nothing much has happened. Trade volumes remain extremely low, like elsewhere on the continent. So I'm skeptical of a major, uh, highly lucrative economic partnership developing there, but Russia will remain an important player. Russia's uh, involvement elsewhere in the Horn of Africa has often been more talk than action. They talked about, uh, or at least... uh, talked about in, in cooperating with the West in terms of anti-piracy. They did so in, under Dimitri Medvedev's presidency in 2008. And when the Somalis asked the Russians for some help against Al-Shabaab, they smiled and nodded, but then didn't really ever follow through. So there's not much uh, of a relationship over there. They've tried to uh, periodically make outreaches to Somaliland in the hopes of recreating a, a foothold in Berbera, but nothing much has happened with that either. And their involvement with Eritrea is more mainly small arms sales and... Uh, Showing that they're against uh, sanctions and isolation of the Afrowari regime, so russia's involvement in the Horn of Africa is um, a lot shallower than it looks, though their presence is growing in Ethiopia, and uh, they have a potentially stronger foothold in Sudan with now a legal military presence coming from the base, not just relying on contractors that they can potentially leverage
0: so so should we view russia as a as a great power in in africa i mean in in some ways you know, the, the war has made Russia obviously central to the big picture um, because of the geopolitics around the war. Uh, but then also these sanctions, you know, and the war itself will, of course, constrain, um, you know, the limits of what Russia can actually devote and, and hope to achieve in Africa. And in the course of this discussion, I mean, it, it almost looks like at times Russia can only offer states, you know, what the West refuses to, um, you know, it's the states already isolated from the West who, who turned to Russia rather than, Russia being able to necessarily compete and lure the states directly on its own terms. So, how should we view Russia on the continent moving ahead?
1: I think that Russia, as a descriptor I use in my book, is that uh, Russia is a virtual great power inside Africa. So, basically, uh, what they are is that they have a continent wide presence. They can invite 43 heads of state to the Sochi summit. They're hosting the second uh, Russia Africa summit in St. Petersburg in 2022. And it doesn't seem at the end of the year, it doesn't seem to be much of a cancellation of that plan in October and November. We're seeing African countries visit the Saint Petersburg Economic Forum. We're seeing uh, the Vladimir Putin being f- feted uh, b- by visiting uh, c- countries, but there isn't much depth to that influence in a lot of respects because the security presence, as I said, is based on often failed counterinsurgency missions and deals with isolated countries rather than really strong partnerships with the uh, major regional powers. I mean, obviously, they have a longstanding partnership with Egypt that is extended into Libya. But even then, direct Russian-Egyptian cooperation in the uh, Haftar offensive on Tripoli was more limited than some might have expected. They have a longstanding arms relationship with Algeria. But Algeria is an alternative supplier of gas now to Italy and potentially other European countries. Their relationship with Nigeria was one of convenience because the uh, in the struggle against Boko Haram, there were concerns also about human rights, and the U.S. did not supply Apache jets, and the Russians stepped in with MIGs. But now that partnership really hasn't taken off in a meaningful way. And South Africa, there's so many domestic polarizations, and that legacy of the Zuma era, that dilutes it. So Russia's partnerships with the major regional powers in Africa is quite limited. Its, uh, its security role has also uh, got a lot of flaws in their economic role in terms of trade, they have a lower trade volume than Turkey and less than one third of India. So that's hardly the foundations of real great power status, because India and Turkey are not generally viewed to be great powers in Africa to begin with.
0: It seems sort of, you know, inevitable that the West foreign policy for a while might be organized around constraining uh, Russia, or at least that's, you know, that that has the looks of sort of the the new world that we're entering. To the degree that that policy uh, bleeds over as it as it inevitably will sum um, into sort of Western policy, U.S. and European policy uh, towards Africa. Is there a better way of doing that versus a, uh, <laughs> a, a, a much worse way of, of taking such a policy and applying such a power uh, competition framework uh, versus Russia or Russia and China together um, on the continent?
1: Well, that's a great question. I think that I would view Russia's growing influence in Africa and some of its pernicious activities as a symptom of a broader problem on the continent rather than the cause of it. And that's something that's often missed in the uh, in Washington and also in Europe as well, where there's so much of a focus on, you know, the Wagner Group and the human rights abuses and not enough on the factors that actually lead to African countries seeking out the Wagner Group's presence, as well as African countries uh, seeking out Russia as a partner in spite of its uh, deplorable track record. And uh, the problems that we're dealing with are state fragility. We're dealing with uh, the tendency of uh, conflicts in the region to become uh, proxy wars Uh, uh, corruption, uh, weak democratic institutions, or authoritarian persistence. And Russia feeds off of kleptocracy, civil wars, and uh, uh, these kind of internecine conflicts with a lot of moving parts, and tries to also capitalize and fill vacuums where the West is not engaged or not interested in. So it capitalizes on both disorder and apathy at the same time. So the way to deal with Russia is not to chase them. Russian security policy in Africa is quite nimble and it's quite flexible. I mean, they have PMCs in the Republic of Congo. They have uh, some security presences in in Burundi, Libya. They've got uh, close partnerships with their arms for platinum deal in Zimbabwe. They've proliferated across the continent in a way that's a lot more agile than what we saw during the Soviet era, where they tended to focus on depth over breadth, as I mentioned, larger, more comprehensive partnerships, and they tended to move a lot more slowly with the entry of Cubans, the entry of Warsaw Pact advisors, ideological alignments, uh, friendship treaties, and we could prepare for it a lot faster. Russians' current policy is a lot more reactive, it's spontaneous, it's unpredictable, and it's nimble. So trying to chase the Russians around the continent is a bit of a fool's game because we're never going to be able to out-chase uh, out them. So what we need to do is something a bit different. Number one, don't treat Russia and China as equivalent to uh, a dual containment inside Africa, because the interests of Russia and China and Africa are actually quite different and are at times at odds with each other. Russia's use of water Group private military contractors is often viewed unfavorably by the Chinese media, because they create disruptions, they could threaten the Belt and Road investments, and they also tend to engage with non-state actors and local strongmen, like the Hemetis and the Khalifa Haftars, and not with UN-recognized governments like China generally tends to do, and China is a lot more focused on stability than regime type, whereas Russia seems to often be more focused on regime type because that enables uh, state capture and uh, kleptocratic activities. The, it's true that China welcomes Russia in some ways as a counterweight to Western influence like the Port Sudan base, or it won't say no to some of its uh, actions in Central African Republic, particularly since they've been firmly on the side of the Tuadera government and not uh, balancing with the Axelica rebels. When they were playing a double game, the Chinese were a bit more worried. But that does not mean that Russia and China's interests line up exactly. And also it's telling to note that the bilateral relationship and strengthening of the partnership between Russia and China that we're seeing has not translated to increased interactions inside Africa. Aside from a joint economic summit that's held between Russian and Chinese leaderships on the African continent, which deals with macro-level issues of policy, we're not really seeing much uh, cooperation between the uh, Russians and the Chinese on major issues inside Africa. So treat Russia and China as separate threats, maybe even find ways to engage with China as a counterweight to to, to Russia, and don't try to pursue this kind of new Cold War dual containment approach. And second, acknowledge that Russia is a symptom and exacerbator of existing problems, but not the cause of all these problems, because even if it has got malign intentions, it doesn't necessarily have the capabilities to act on those intentions a lot of the time, and deal a lot more with engaging with countries and regions where that felt left out, like Central Africa. Be a bit more wary about the wanton imposition of sanctions as a cure-all tool, but especially if those sanctions lead to economic hardship and don't really discourage elite behavior. And that's what we might start seeing happening in in, in a country like Ethiopia. And uh, and just in general, be more involved in diplomatic engagement. So the Biden administration's policy of of creating a new Horn of Africa envoy, which China seems to have replicated. Those things are, are good and positive steps because Russia will be moving more diplomats to the continent more likely. And we'll be trying to expand its engagement it with various local partners. So uh, work, work uh, with these countries also in a more diplomatic, uh, effective way. And finally, uh, try to see how secondary sanctions can be crafted in a way to deter Russia from being able to pursue major flagship megaprojects on the continent, whether that be Ajakuta, whether that be nuclear uh, power, plant, uh, uh, power plants, or just simply the movement of, uh, of Russian arms in large quantities. Uh, obviously, the poor performance of the Russian military and the uh, sanctions that are there and the increasing appeal of alternative arms vendors in the non-West, like Turkey and China, and the arms side might take uh, over part of it. And imposing too stiff sanctions on arms might lead just to smuggling of uh, of weapons like we saw coming out of Libya into the Sahel that caused so much mayhem uh, in Mali in 2012 and 2013. But... A tighter secondary sanctions regime from the coercive side would also be beneficial. But there's got to be a mixture of co-option and coercion. And there can't be this kind of new Cold War, chase Russia, wherever we find them mentality, because that will get American policy nowhere. Thanks, Samuel. Yeah, no problem. Great to be here.
0: Thanks for listening. A special thanks to my colleagues, Alyssa and Nikola, who guest hosted the podcast while I was on paternity leave. And a special note that Alyssa is now co-host on Crisis Group's Europe podcast, War and Peace, which has much more analysis on the war in Ukraine. You can find out more about Crisis Group or read our reports at crisisgroup.org. I'm Alan Boswell. This podcast is produced by Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi.